Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, and our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. I'm pretty sure we already have. So, welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody's Apparently, it's time to end the stigma about graphic novels. Did, yep. you, did you know? Did you know there was a stigma? I do. Okay. What have you seen? Like, has it been in your classrooms? Uh, being around other parents at the library when because we weekly would go to the library and parents were like, "Don't go over to that section oh, over there." Really? For real? Okay. Now, did you ever? Because read- they're like, "Oh, my kid in kindergarten." Don't you remember in kindergarten? I'm like, my kid can read already, and I'm like sweating with my first kid because I'm like, "Oh my god, my kid can't read." <laughs> do you don't remember that? I don't. You know, my kid couldn't read. But They're like, like, oh, my kid's reading Harry Potter books already. And I, oh. I was like, what? Okay, come on. My kid was watching Scooby-Doo. <laughs> so, but I didn't grow up reading. I, I was trying to remember about this. Like, so I know we had Sunday funnies. Yes. And I know that in the during the week, they were black and white. So you could do sort of oh, updates yeah. during the week. But I... Kicking the cobwebs out of my brain. Yeah, yeah exactly. I do remember that. But Sunday I, and, fun. And you remember like getting that section of the paper from my dad, yeah, and reading that, and it was like watching a TV show because you it was episodic, right? Yeah, it was serial or you know, so you could follow along with Weekly. the lives of people. Yeah, exactly. I remember uh, Peanuts and Garfield. Oh yeah, those oh, were yeah, the two. For sure. that, I mean, Peanuts. Hello. Yeah. Well, so apparently the stigma started in like 1954 with a book called Seduction of the Innocent. Whoa, and that sounds ominous. Okay. I know. And so uh, this author, Frederick Wortham, suggested that reading comics caused juvenile delinquency. For real? Yeah. So I guess that's probably where some of these parents got it. They were probably like, uh, well, I don't want a juvenile delinquent. Right. So, <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, but, you know, the authors and the readers did not give up. And in 2005, Scholastic started a publishing arm or an imprint is what they call it in publishing, called Graphics. And uh, it specializes in children's graphic novels like okay. Bone, Amulet, and the Babysitter's Club. Yep, I know that one. Yeah. So, um, Well, I, I read somewhere that according to ICV2 and Comicron. Comicron, yeah. Yeah. Sales of comics and graphic novels in the United States and Canada had hit an all-time high in 2018. And I guess in 2019... Their momentum is still is just as strong. Uh-huh. Um, you've probably heard of, um, have you heard of Dave Pilkey's Dogman series? Yeah. Uh, and Captain Under, he's written a whole bunch. Yes. Ethan, my son loved him. Yeah. Um, has sold more than 775,000 copies since August. Yeah, the new one's called Dogman for Whom the Ball Rolls. Whoa. <laughs> 
And uh, Raina Telgemeier's Guts shot to number one in the first week of sales on USA Today's uh, bestselling list. Yeah, and I heard it was also number one on Amazon. So speaking of Raina Telgemeier, have you read any of her books? Uh, yes. So uh, my kids started with Smile, um, which I think is sort of a memoir and um, and follows the main character, Raina, mm-hmm. uh, through middle school and into high school as she navigates adolescence. And it starts with her falling down and knocking out her two front teeth and then this unbelievable series of events to get her her smile back essentially right, right. um and then the, the second one they read was sisters um about reina and her sister amara which is perfect for your girls it is and it was perfect for me because i we, well, you have sisters i yes. have a sister so um you know the relationships can be complicated yes and um you know you, you wish and wish and wish that you get a sister and then you don't get to choose which one yeah <laughs> <laughs> what it looks like, how it acts, its personality. Exactly. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. Yes, exactly. So um, I I loved reading those, um, and my kids. Um, we were talking about this last night. My kids loved them because they love the details of the drawings. Sure, it adds a dimension to the reading. Yeah. Well, I read somewhere uh, a New York Times writer actually likened. Raina Telgemeier to a modern day Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary. Yep, totally. And I was taking that in as I was reading this article about Raina, and I gotta say, she she kind of is because in this day and age, like graphic novels uh, being so popular, they kind of take stories and have uh, powerful messages with them. And liking it back to when we were kids, Judy Bloom and Beverly. I mean, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, mm-hmm. and all those books that we, we must read. increase our bust. <laughs> all the things that we read that had messages or dealt with things that we were dealing with right then and that's what that what makes i think reina's memoirs so powerful is that she's tackling these topics that kids are dealing with on a regular basis and that they might feel are taboo until they see it in front of them sure normalizes it yes exactly so we're thrilled to talk to reina herself reina telgemeier the author of smile drama sisters ghosts and the just released title this fall guts Uh, She's also the illustrator for the Babysitter Club series as well. And her books have collectively had more than 18 million in print. There are 18 million in print. Thanks for joining us today, Raina. Thank you for having me on today. (laughs) Hi. So as a kid, as a kid, Raina, what were some of your favorite comic strips? Like what were influences for you? I think the first comic strip I ever gravitated to was Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. Mm-hmm. And that's true of most of the cartoonists of my generation. We grew up with it and it was only in the paper for 10 years, but what a 10 years it was. It was, it's a strip that's a philosophical and really beautifully drawn and, you know, explores character relationships and focuses on a character who's not very likable, but you can't help but root for him when you read it Mm -hmm. and uh, it's just like a tour de force of comic strips. There's there's just never been anything like it before or since. So that, that just grabbed my attention and, you know, (laughs) I was a fan immediately. And my second favorite, I shouldn't say second. There's no, there's no ranking here. Sure, sure. (laughs) The second one that I, I I really got into and started reading was for better or for worse by Lynn Johnston. And I think that's probably the strip that had the biggest influence on my drawing style and my writing style and the types of stories that I tell, probably it, because it was most similar to like the prose books that I was reading and the TV shows that I watched. So um, there were those two. And then there was Foxtrot by Bill Anand 
and Luann by Greg Evans and Dennis the Menace and the Far Side. And so I just became like a voracious comic reader. I was about nine years old when I started. I'm remembering, too, that For Better or For Worse was one that I definitely uh, appointment viewed, if you will. Um, but <laughs> did you ever read Brenda Starr? Brenda Starr. It wasn't in my paper. Okay. So she, I didn't grow up with that one. She was a female reporter with a giant yeah. chest. <laughs> What? <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. I I recognize the name, but like you're saying all these uh, these comic strips, and I I do remember them, but I can't picture them right now. But I do remember the name and seeing them. So, um, so you know, for better or for worse, you mentioned that that one is similar to you, and I, and I see that when I look mm-hmm. at your stuff, um, your books, because for better or for worse was a family comic, right? So your books have these yeah. relatable themes, um, struggles with school, family, friendships, bullies, um. Did you keep a diary growing up? How do you how do you reach back in time and access these things so beautifully and realistically? I did keep a diary. Started writing in a diary when I was maybe eight or nine years old, and it was just you know words. And then when I was ten or eleven, I started illustrating my diary entries. So they they sort of morphed into being a comic strip diary. So it became like a that. sketchbook rather than like the lines. Yeah. Remember the ones when you were a kid, they were like hot pink and they had the locket on it and you had to lock it up so <laughs> yeah. that your sister didn't read it. Oh, I had That's what I, I had those. I remember my dad telling me once like that he knew where I kept my diary, which was under my mattress. You know, like, I don't know why he told me that, but it just like the rock that was in my stomach when he said that. I was like, my life has ended because yeah. my dad knows where I keep my diary. Violated. Um, it had a lock <laughs> like, on it, so it was safe. Yeah, but I, so I started keeping an illustrated diary uh, end of elementary school, beginning of middle school. And instead of like writing about everything that happened to me, I would just draw everything and I would spend hours every day working on it. And nobody ever saw these illustrations because they were very personal and <laughs> often embarrassing. But, you know, I kept them all and put them in boxes. And then when I moved out of my mom's house when I was 22, I went through the whole thing. Wow. Like all of my childhood art and decided what to keep and what to throw away. And kind of just called it down to the essential moments. Like, okay, there was this person I was really good friends with when I was a junior in high school. And so that was probably the first time I really went back through everything. And then I've done it again a couple of times since then. And now that I'm writing memoir, I do occasionally sort of troll my own memories for moments and and opinions on things and and feelings. And every time I sit down with them, I just get drawn in. It's like, I know what happened. It's not like I'm reading to find out what happened to me. I'm me. But it's really easy for me to get caught up in the emotional space of being younger. And I just, I think I also have a pretty good memory, a pretty photographic memory. So I remember what things looked like and how things felt and how things smelled. And sometimes I'll walk into a place and like the smell will hit me and I'll just, I'll just know. I'll just, I'll have like a flood of memories. That I have that too. To me just. Yeah, I think smell memory. I think about that. I I don't know what it's called, but like I'll smell something and I'll be like, I remember being at my grandpa's house and it's a smell like my grandpa's house. And so if you were to take that memory and say grandpa's house and then sit down with a pencil and paper and try to remember everything you see and everything you touched and everything you may have done while you were there and how were you bored? Were you happy? Were you content? Were you tired? Like, those are, those are kind of the ways that I build stories sometimes is I start with one small piece and then my brain can expand it from there. And uh, my parents also kept pretty good um, photo diaries. So we had albums everywhere and they took pictures. And so lucky for me, I have those two 
uh, in my arsenal. Sure. And then were you, when you were drawing your diary, were you Raina or were you, were, were there different characters? This is back when I was a kid, you mean? Yeah. Oh, no, it was just me. I didn't. <laughs> I, was, I was not a kid with an imagination. It was very literal. Okay. And I always have been. I think that's why I liked realistic fiction books so much is they just felt so much like I was reading about real people. And I always liked reading memoirs, too, and watching documentaries. <laughs> yeah, so there was, there was a brief period in early in my cartooning days. I started making comics when I was about 10. And I tried to do it with fictional characters and to kind of make things a little bit more idealized. But that never really worked. It was, it was always easier for me to just write in my journal and to draw stories about stuff that had happened to me. And that's, it was just practice, I guess, for the job that I ended up doing. Did it ever feel like you were um, going to be too vulnerable? Because when you're writing about yourself, you put yourself out there to be criticized. Um, you do. Maybe because I was so practiced with just doing the art and the writing for myself and making the thing that I wanted to make. I, it didn't really matter to me who saw it and what they thought. But when I first started self-publishing my mini comics, these were like short stories that I wrote during college. People seem to like them pretty well. That's and occasionally great. I'd get feedback like, there really wasn't a story here. <laughs> or, you know, this isn't very interesting. And I'm like, that's life. Life is, it is what it is. And it doesn't always have a perfectly uh, <laughs> rot no, arc. It, it's a <laughs> series. okay. Like, yeah. It's a series of moments, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's just what's always been interesting to me. So I think it's it's reflected in the work that I do. That's a very healthy way of looking at it. <laughs> it's not I, always I tied up well, in a pretty bow. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not always going to be like um, start to finish a, a story and, and wrapped up and, and pretty. So in mm-hmm. your latest book, Guts, um, which I, I really enjoyed, I, I was reading it just last week, you shed light on uh, things like anxiety and panic attacks and phobias. And I, I had to say that I, I actually related to some, some of the things that you wrote about myself. Um, and th- all these things are kind of things that kids, ha- you know, you hear about anxiety and um, panic attacks now, like with school refusal, kids not wanting to go to school because they're anxious and so on. So this was a memoir. Can you take us through the story of what brought you to the point that you were going to, to write about your childhood anxiety? Sure. So I've been writing memoir now for about 10 years. The Smile was published in 2010. It's hard to believe. Yeah. But I've, I've focused on things that have happened to me. So Smile is a story about a dental misadventure that I dealt with in middle school. Sisters is about a road trip that my family took when I was a teenager. And my readers just love it and they can't get enough and they want to know more and they they ask, like, are you ever going to write a story about Rena when she was a little kid? Or are you ever, you know, they are you going to write about bullying? Or they, they sort of, they know what topics they're interested in reading about. So I hear from them a ton. But I don't have, like, another story in my life that's as specific as something like Smile. This thing happened to me. Instead, I have these these more amoebic memories of this is who I am. This is stuff that I've dealt with. These are feelings that I've had. And I started experiencing phobia and panic attacks and anxiety when I was about nine. So the same age that I started reading comics. Um, And it's something I've lived with my whole life. So I knew there was potential to tell a story about dealing with anxiety, but I wasn't sure where the story ended because there is no ending. It's just what I live with. But, you know, I, I had been working on something else for a little while and it just wasn't coming together 
And within that story was this sort of subplot about my anxiety. And I realized that that alone was probably enough. So I just decided to start with where did it begin? How did my anxiety start? What, what do I remember being this starting point for like having panic attacks? And so I wrote that down and then focused the rest of the story on the stuff that happened to me when I was in elementary school, which involved a couple of mean girls and my best friend moving away and going to therapy. So I went to therapy for one year when I was in fifth grade. And so, you know, that seemed like a, a it, it was it was possible for me to like hinge a story with a beginning, a middle, and an ending on those times. Sure. But then I needed to have an afterword in the book to say this is really not the ending of this story. I've dealt with this through my whole life, and I've dealt with it as an adult. And um, I have done a lot of therapy as an adult, and so I think it was really that therapy that allowed me to come to this story and be able to tell this story, but also just to bring it back. It's my readers who I know can trust me, I guess, to like talk sure. about this stuff. And, and I can trust them to take my memories and my vulnerabilities and to not laugh at me. Like now I know that they're, my readers are supportive. Oh, no, kids, they're, you know, they're eating it up. <laughs> what, I was yeah, reading that and, there's like one in five kids will experience some kind of clinical level anxiety by the time they're adolescent. So like... This book, Guts, in particular, is very timely. Could you, well, is this just dumb luck that you're bringing this book to, to life and, and, and out with the public now? Because I feel like it's perfectly executed and timed given the times that these kids are living in right now. I think it is dumb luck. I didn't set out to be timely. I never use what's going on in the zeitgeist to determine what I'm going to write about. I think I was also experiencing the same types of anxiety that a lot of us were in years like 2016. (laughs) (laughs) So I was, I was also going through some, um, some personal changes and some loss in my life. And so I had a lot to process and that's part of what drove me back into therapy. It was okay. I have, I have some stuff I need to work out on the personal level, but I think it's also time for me to tackle my phobias head on because I've never really done that. So I got into exposure therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and just trying techniques that have been developing for the last however many decades. But I feel like psychology has sort of risen to the forefront in the conversation that we're having. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's more, it's less taboo than it used to be. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of literature about it, a lot of science. We've made a lot of strides. And so I just, I feel lucky that I've had the chance to live from that era where I grew up into this era. And that was actually one of the challenges in writing Guts was that I had memories of therapy from 1987. I wanted to write about those memories, but I had a beta reader who has been a child psychologist since the 70s, and she was like, some of the way that we handle this stuff has changed. So we don't want to discount your memories, but we do want to make sure that the language is somewhat up to date. So that a kid who may be going to therapy now isn't baffled by what you experienced and then saying, this isn't what Raina dealt with. Why am I doing it this way? So there were just, there were, there were updates that were made to the language and um, it was an interesting balance to strike between, between what was true then and what's true now and making them sort of meet somewhere in between that felt like the right compromise for both of us. Sure. Rena, when you draw anxiety, um, and I'm looking at a, a 
some panels right now. Um, there's an excellent bit where, you know, it's you in the center and then these words around you, um, you know, intestinal surgery, death, you know, um, it's upside down. So sickness, whatever. So, and, but then the next, the next panel, you are much smaller and the words are much bigger and there are more of them. Um, how do you, how do you come to that to, to show? It's, it's like you show motion with still pictures. Yeah. How did you, how did you figure out how to draw anxiety? <laughs> like that, it's very, it's very, um, very clear what's going on in that. And when you're reading it. Thank you. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just part of, the evolution of a cartoonist, I guess. I've been drawing most of my life and drawing characters for many, many, many of those years. And so I've, I've always been interested in faces and using the language of comics to show emotion. So things like sweat beads and little hearts above the character's head mm-hmm. and all of those little shortcut visual cues that we sometimes use to kind of push an idea. And so it was just pushing the push, <laughs> like giving it, shoving, shoving those ideas over the edge and seeing where they went. And it sort of felt like I had to trigger myself in some ways to, to get myself back into that headspace, <laughs> which wasn't really very difficult because I'm easily triggered. <laughs> I have a lot of things that upset me, you know, and I'm prone to rumination and I'm, I'm prone to some obsessive thought. And I just tried to close my eyes and let it, come to me and then open my eyes again and draw mm-hmm. what was going on. And sometimes it was using, like you just described, there's a, there's a couple of panels where the character is surrounded by a swirl of words and those represent those circular thoughts. And in the final panel on the page you're describing, it's just like the character is tiny and there's a bunch of blank space around her. Mm-hmm. She has just been asked, what is it that you're upset about? And there's all these thoughts in her head that she's not vocalizing, but she's feeling these fears. And then when she finally answers the question, she says, I don't know, mm. because she doesn't know how to talk about it yet. Right. And those are those are pulled straight from from memories and conversations where you, you're asked a big question and you don't even know where to begin. So you you don't. But, you know, learning to open up, <laughs> learning to open the doors. Of the mind. The, the <laughs> visual about how you're feeling. The visualness yeah. of of those panels alone feels like sometimes my brain, and I know my daughter's brain oh. as well. She's 13. Middle school is just it's just rough. Middle school is kind of tough. It is. And at the yeah. end of the day, when she doesn't want to talk to me, like I know that the, what it looks like in those panels is what's going on up in her brain. Like holy smokes, there's just a lot going on, mm-hmm. and I just need to go be by myself for a few minutes. To process, yeah, I kept it together all day. Pencil, yeah. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> I would come home and eat like a whole bag of Doritos sometimes because I was just so <laughs> overstimulated and couldn't handle it. So I'd eat the Doritos, I'd watch some Ducktales, and then I'd go upstairs and draw for two hours, <laughs> and then I was fine. <laughs> that was my coping strategy. That's funny. I was talking to my kids' school librarian about you and your books and how we were going to talk to you, and she says the kids in the library absolutely devour them, and she is. Circling back to what we how we started this whole conversation was she's always stunned when parents are like, I don't want my kids reading graphic novels. And she went on to explain how 
Um, graphic novels are very complex stories and intricate and wonderful things for kids to read. And then I go and read this parents article, parents.com article that's, that you're actually quoted in. And it says, you, you said that graphic novels require a different level of reading comprehension than a traditional novel. So kids decipher a story not just with words, but with the plots captured in the images. Why, why is that important? Um, I think a lot of kids are visual learners. Yes. I know I was. I was much better at retaining information if there was a picture or a graph or a comic. You know, when you get on an airplane and there's a, a seatback card in front of you to tell you what to do in an emergency, there's no words. It's just pictures. Mm-hmm. And it just it, it gets inside of your brain. So if you're panicked later because your plane is crashing, you're like, what did I see? Oh, right. I saw that you put on your life jacket and you put the oxygen mask over your head. And oh, there's a window here. Like, so I don't know. There's just there's there's science. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know the science and I'm not good at articulating it. I just know for my own experience that this is absolutely true, that if I was handed a textbook of history and asked to take a test uh, to like remember the dates and the significance of of why this thing happened and when it did, I'd be like, I don't know. I can probably pare it back to you, the information that I was supposed to remember for that test, then I'm going to forget it afterwards. But if you give me a story about a character and, you know, he was a diplomat and he had to go overseas and he encountered these experiences and trials and tribulations, like I'm going to be able to tell you that story for the rest of my life. So, Absolutely. I don't know. I'm just I'm just a believer. I feel like I'm a good example of somebody who's who's been able to retain a lot, but only through pictures and not necessarily through writing. I do like written words. I, I want to make sure that people know that I'm an advocate for graphic novels while also being a huge fan of reading and of prose. So I don't think one should ever replace the other. One is not better than the other, but they're both equally valuable. So you you mentioned, too, in this article that the kids read your books differently, or any graphic novel, but they, they speed through them. I think they're kind of plot-driven at the beginning, and then they go back and they read them over and over again. Um, do, yeah. you, do you think that helps them comprehend, or do you think... Um, because you know, I, I did this too. I, I sped through because I wanted to know what happened to your teeth. <laughs> but then I went back and I like, you know, enjoyed looking at teen spirit, <laughs> which I didn't even know was, a, was an actual deodorant. I thought it was just a, a Nirvana song. <laughs> um, but so I went back and I looked at these details because you're a little bit younger than we are. But I remember the earthquake in 89. And I remember um, all the details of what we wore. And, and um, it is fun to go back a second time and a third time to re-encounter your story. Mm-hmm. There's also so much humor in graphic novels. And I think it feels really good to have a joke land for the first time and you laugh at it and then you, you know, close the book and you're like, okay, that was really fun and, and wonderful. Now I kind of want to know how that joke was created. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you reread comics, you're rereading with like, just like one step ahead of your first reader experience with that story. And you're, you're able to kind of get into the cartoonist said, and to see how they paced that joke and how they set it up and how the punchline, you know, like, oh, it was all there. I just didn't see it the first time through. It's like figuring out all the clues and the visual cues, not just the, the language cues, but the visual cues. And, and if you're a cartoonist who relishes in that sort of thing, you can drop clues into the pictures. And you're talking about um, a page from Smile where it's a splash panel, which means it's like a just an illustration between chapters. Mm-hmm. 
where I illustrated all of the, the beauty products that I was using um, at that time in my life. So teen spirit deodorant and exclamation perfume yep. and, you know, cover girl nail polish. And I, I looked all of those things up and made sure that I had the branding and the packaging correct. And I mean, a kid's going to read that and be like, I don't know what that is, but maybe later they'll go look it up online and then ask their mom, like, what is teen spirit deodorant? And then their mom will tell a story about her childhood, you know? So it's yeah. like these great conversations come out of just one picture on a page. And yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm such a, such a fan, but it's, it's a rich medium. It's a rich format for storytelling a lot of kids are more visual than verbal. A lot of kids are struggling with the amount of words they see on a page. They get intimidated and they don't want to read. Yes. Or, you know, I also think that sometimes kids have just been reading a genre that doesn't click with them. And by genre, I mean the subject matter. Like, are they just reading fantasy? Are they just reading nonfiction? Are they just reading realistic fiction? Maybe whatever it is that's popular with their classmates is not the preferred genre for that. Maybe they just haven't read the right book yet. But graphic novels have an endless variety of genre. Well, I think <laughs> I the tide happened to write the realistic fiction ones. I think the tide is changing because from in my experience in my household, um, there was a uh, book report that my son had to do and he had to answer questions. But also uh, as a side, another project, they had to do a comic strip to illustrate the um, conflict and all kinds of other stuff. And then my daughter, who's in middle school, cool. in social studies, had to take a social issue and make a comic strip out of it as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I f- and, and the kids love it because not only are they learning and, and explaining what they know to their teacher, but they're doing it creatively and have mm-hmm. like the creative license to, to depict it however they want. And I, I was kind of excited to see that it was something rather than just a boring book report of like paragraphs on a page, like spitting back what you, th- what you know, it was, it was richer. Oh, that's awesome. I wish I could go back and be a kid now because that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it would be totally something you'd love. <laughs> Learning is fun. What? <laughs> well, so the, the article in Parents uh, said that it's not what kids read, but how they read and how often they read um, that's important. So, um, and that if you push, you know, the wrong kind of reading on a certain kid, that kid might not ever want to read. If you had advice for parents, what would it be in terms of uh, getting kids interested in reading? Um, I think the parents, number one, should not discourage their kids from the graphic novel section. That just, that like stuck a knife through my heart when you guys read that earlier. Hmm. Um, read the books with your kids, you know, like my mom used to read the books that I was reading and she probably would not have read the Babysitter's Club on her own. It wouldn't have been <laughs> the first thing she gravitated to, but she got really into it. She got really into the characters with me. And so we were able to talk about it together. And, you know, visits to the library and the bookstore are a wonderful thing. And just checking in with your your teachers and asking what, you know, is on the reading list this year. If it seems if you're if you're a real hip parent and you're like, oh, wait, all these books were written over 50 years ago by white men. Like push Mm. back against that. (laughs) Let's let's get some diversity on those reading lists. Let's get a variety of styles of text. Let's get some some books in. uh Oh my gosh, why did I forget? You know, they're like poems. Books and verse. Sorry. <laughs> it's still early in the morning here. Um, 
Yeah, I, there's just there's so much great literature out there, and and middle grade especially has never been better. There are so many great books on the shelves, and I'm talking prose, I'm talking graphic novels, I'm talking hybrids, everything. It's it's so great, um, and I want I want that enthusiasm to exist for everybody, not just not just the ones who are pushing it, but the readers themselves. The sure. Kids. You want buy-in, like, that's why when the parents at the library, when I said that they, like, feel like they need their kids to be reading chapter books and and all these, like, thick, like, it's like a bragging right to say that their kid read a 400-page book. Who cares? That's so stupid. They will when they're ready. Yeah. You know, and and graphic novels seem to make kids into readers, and that means they're readers, and they're going to want to read books about those characters that they already love, so... I mean, I, I adapted the Babysitter's Club into graphic novels starting in 2006. That was actually my first professional job. Mm-hmm. And I wrote four of them. And then that was it. And then kids were like, what else happens to these characters? And I was like, well, there's 128 other books for you to read. So you can find out what happens to Christy, Claudia, Mary, Ann, Stacey, and Don if you continue reading the prose books. And a lot of them did. Wow. you know. And, and I got really interested in... World War II, because I read the books Barefoot Den and Mouse by Art Spiegelman when I was a teenager. And so that led me down the rabbit hole of reading prose books and nonfiction books and grown-up books about those two, you know, about the Holocaust and about the war in Japan and about religion. And about it's like, I just, I just became so interested in these subjects that I wanted more. And I think that's another thing that graphic novels have the potential to do so, you know, if they're a springboard yeah, or, or a, a gateway, term, like yeah, a, I, I hear the term scaffolding, which I think is really great, where you're building upon it. You can start with sure. the bottom level of scaffolding and then you can rise up as tall as the building. That's a big word in education right now, scaffolding. <laughs> is it? Okay. it is. It is. Um, Raina, I know we have to. I'm not in education, so I'm like, this is a great term I just heard. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, Raina, I'm not in education either, so I'm learning that too. So, um, but looking at your website, and I know we have to wrap up, but the, I get the impression that kids think you're one of them, um, and maybe turn to you for advice. When you interact with kids, what's that like? And is it uncomfortable when they sort of want your opinion, or how do you feel about it? They more than they want my opinion. I think they just want to be friends with me, mm-hmm. and. That's awesome, but there's there's no way I can possibly be personal BFFs with like every one of the 18 million kids that have read my books, much as I would like to. But there are kids that I'm friends with. There are kids in my life who I, I am, you know, they're dear to me, and so I put I put my energy into those relationships. But I also am informed by those kids what they're interested, in, what they like. And then, you know, I can sort of talk to my readers as if they are my friends and invite them to be my friend through my work. Mm-hmm. So I hope that I hope that by me continuing to make work and to write books feels like it's the right level of <laughs> me giving back as far as friendship goes. Sure. Yeah, and, you know, oftentimes they want advice and I, I can't give them advice if I don't know them and I'm really not allowed to anyway. So. Right. I just try and refer them back to their own lives and, you know, find a grown-up that you know, talk to a family member, a friend, just but, anybody who knows you. But I think that your honesty in the books, um, it's authentic. And I think that they're learning from you whether or yeah. not you're, you know, 
talking to them specifically. So. Yeah, you're showing your vulnerability. Like the the whole guts thing, you lay it all out there. And so I, I imagine there's lots of kids out there that are like, oh, I'm not weird. Like other people feel like yeah. this. And I, I, I can speak up. I shouldn't be ashamed to be anxious about snakes or snakes. throw up or my, the tummy <laughs> aches I get when I come home from school. And maybe you're giving them a voice or a platform for them to go and say, hey, mom, I don't really feel good. I have a stomach ache almost every day or whatever. And then it starts mm-hmm. dialogue. So you're like kind of yeah. empowering kids to say, hey, you can talk about it. It's okay. So cool. I, I'm really just overwhelmed and grateful that I get to, to do that for a living. And it's, it's because I've chosen to be vulnerable myself. And I, I can't stress it enough. It's like share your story because it will encourage people to share with you. And then you feel less alone when that happens. Well, thank you so much, Raina Telgemeier, the author of Smile, Drama, Sisters, Ghosts, and the newly released Guts. We love your work, yes. and it was great talking to you. It takes guts. I Thank love it. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. So apparently, reading is reading, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to force our kids to struggle through those big 400-page books just to say that our kids can read them and stuff. And we should let them enjoy what they read and choose what they want to read because then they'll become readers. Exactly. And it won't it won't seem awkward to pick up a book. You know, yeah. it'll be what you what you're conditioned to do. So and, and also in today's society, maybe the graphic novels are better because it improves comprehension and memory. So um so don't be afraid of that corner at my library. It's in the corner. <laughs> yeah. The graphic novel Is section. It behind a curtain? <laughs> no, no. It's very accessible, but like parents don't have their kids they don't want them to go in that corner it yeah. just seems so silly to me let them read everything yeah absolutely so we're at the beginning of season five i know can you believe that crazy we we have a request we have homework for, <laughs> for you guys exactly we'd really love for you to rate us on itunes um and leave us a review spread the word to all your friends um let them know that we talked to reina today and um Let's let's get the word out about graphic novels. Yeah, and check out our Facebook page. We post other stuff up there, too. Quite often, it's funny stuff. So yes. check out Facebook. Uh, give us a call at 331-704-0046. We just got a voicemail the other day, and we were so excited to hear from someone. Or you can email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is the WGN Plus Podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. Thank you.